Welcome to the Most Important Work Podcast with clinical psychologist, Dr. Jessica Black. Each episode, she uses her background in addictive behaviors and psychological trauma to address common questions and concerns of the loved ones of individuals with substance use disorders. We invite you to visit our website to suggest questions and topics you'd like Dr. Black to address in future episodes. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, you'll hear from the distinguished emergency medicine physician and director of the Pittsburgh Poison Center, Dr. Michael Lynch, on the importance of safeguarding your opioid medication, especially from children. Now, there were several things about my conversation with Dr. Lynch that really stood out to me. First, Dr. Lynch admits that he was originally wary about medicated assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Then he looked at the data and science supports that for many people, they have the best chance of returning to a happy, full functioning life with medicated assistant treatment, like Suboxone. And he doesn't even call it medicated assisted treatment anymore. He simply refers to it as treatment for opioid use disorder. So I thought that was really interesting. Another thing that he brought up is that lots of prescription medication, like medication that individuals may be taking for um, gout, let's say, is highly toxic to children. So it's not just medication for opioid use disorder. Lots of medication is very toxic or potentially very toxic and really important to safeguard from kids. Finally, something that Dr. Lynch brought up and he wanted me to include took place in our conversation after we were done recording. And that's that he feels that many times caregivers of children are hesitant to call poison control or to present to an emergency room because they're afraid of punishment, which makes sense. And at the same time, he urges you to take the child to call poison control. And he notes that oftentimes the punishment for not taking the child is much worse than if you initially would have sought treatment for them. And then of course, that child suffers much more. So I'll just get right to the interview now. Dr. Lynch. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So you are an emergency medicine physician, and then you went on to specialize in toxicology. What drew you to toxicology? Well, as actually back in medical school, um, I really enjoyed pharmacology, which is uncommon for most medical students who typically don't love pharmacology, at least not at that stage of their training. Uh, And I had decided to do emergency medicine because I liked the breadth of medicine that I'd be exposed to. Um, And within that, the idea of specializing uh, on a, in a topic was appealing to me, and that combined with my uh, love of pharmacology uh, sort of became a natural fit. That's great. And so now um, you also serve as the medical director of the Pittsburgh Poison Control and your consultant for the West Virginia Poison Center. So tell us a little bit about what that role is. What does that look like? Sure. So just 
kind of to back up poison centers in general, there are 55 across the country. Uh, so anywhere in the U.S., there is a single 800 number uh, that anyone can call uh, for free advice. Uh, and that's 800-222-1222. Uh, and each of those centers has a toxicologist who serves as a medical director. And so our roles are to develop guidelines uh, to help staff uh, in answering calls. Uh, so each of those centers is, is staffed 24-7, so you always get a human um, when, when you call. And so the toxicologists who serve as medical directors train uh, the staff who are typically nurses or pharmacists uh, in, in the medical knowledge necessary to provide expert treatment, uh, create guidelines, do quality assessment of cases, so listen to calls, review documentation, uh, et cetera, um, do research on the data that we collect and those types of things. The other part of it is uh, a toxicologist is always on call 24-7 to answer uh, questions through the poison center from healthcare providers. So if a physician or nurse or pharmacist calls and wants to speak to a physician regarding a poisoning case, uh, then they can speak to a toxicologist. And so uh, I'm the medical director of Pittsburgh Poison Center uh, and, and one of the toxicology medical directors of West Virginia Poison Center, and I and my partners uh, are always available uh, through both centers. Right. So you know when you're calling that 1-800 number that you're actually going to receive expert advice. That's correct. Yeah. And best practice. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the region where you practice, in southwestern Pennsylvania and you know, throughout the United States, we're tackling an enormous drug problem right now. What do you see as emergency medicine physicians' role in addressing that problem? First, I appreciate that you said drug and not just opioid. Um, but obviously opioids uh, have, you know, deservedly received much of the attention, uh, especially over the last half a decade or so. Um, but, but it's accurate to say that we have a drug problem. Uh, and uh, whether it's opioids, methamphetamine, cocaine, benzodiazepines, uh, or even alcohol uh, mm -hmm. and other synthetic drugs. Um, so, so I appreciate that, that you, you, you use the term drug instead of opioid. Um, having said that, uh, from the emergency department perspective, uh, you know, we're the front lines. And so uh, people who are using drugs, whether they have a use disorder or using recreationally, um, we know often don't seek treatment related to that drug use, um, and whether it's intentional or because they don't think they have a problem or because they're afraid of the stigma, et cetera. Uh, but whether as a result directly of the drug use, meaning an overdose or secondary, like an infection from injecting drugs uh, or some other problem related to it, uh, it's very frequent that an individual will end up in an emergency department. So we often uh, are, are maybe the first and maybe the only uh, medical providers to come into contact with people at a very vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, time, but also a time that may uh, reflect an opportunity uh, to, to really engage with somebody uh, in a compassionate way and in a way that meets them where they are. Uh, so I think emergency physician role in combating drug use uh, and the epidemic of drug use, opioid or otherwise, is enormous. Um, what, but also limited because we have limited resources that are stretched to deal with, you know, any issue that you could possibly think of. So um, it's 
critically important, but it's also important that the system around the emergency department uh, is, is built up to allow uh, seamless transitions from the emergency department to ongoing support, uh, whether it be medical care, harm reduction services, uh, inpatient, outpatient treatment, any of those types of things. Yeah, that's a great point. So it's a starting point, and it may be one of the only places that someone might be interacting with someone, so meeting them where they are and being compassionate. And I imagine as the physician and the emergency department, you are serving in a leadership role. So how you talk about that patient and things like that sets the tone for how nurses and other staff will interact with them. Absolutely. And we know, I mean, there's data that suggests uh, that the stigma associated with drug use is an incredibly huge issue, both for patients and preventing access. When You know, we know about a, about a fifth of patients who should receive treatment don't, uh, and specifically cite community stigma as the reason. And that's right. conscious. I'm sure unconsciously it's an even larger percentage. Uh, and for providers, uh, we know that stigma and using language changes the way that we treat patients. And it actually decreases our own satisfaction. So it, it's, it's an important thing. And, you know, physicians do serve as an example, again, whether consciously or unconsciously, such that the way that we interact with patients, the language that we use, mm-hmm. um, it, it sets an example, uh, whether positively or negatively, that has rippling effects throughout uh, the emergency department and healthcare system for mm-hmm. patients and their interaction comfort. Uh, and, and in the end, uh, the, the benefit or the outcomes associated with that treatment. Right, right. It could really be a turning point for someone or it could make them um, less likely to seek services in the future. Absolutely. I mean, it can be an entry point to a whole world of Mm -hmm. options, or it could just be a wall that the patient essentially Mm -hmm. deflects off of, and you don't know when they'll be back, if at all, and if so, in what condition. Right. So you, you know, we're talking about the emergency room, which the emergency rooms that you practice in are typically rooms that serve adults. Um, but you also see patients at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, and I think that may surprise some of the listeners. What are some common situations that lead you to te- treating a child? So it's actually a really interesting part of my practice. Um, anybody who treats children or is involved in pediatric care, um, one of the challenges and, and really the, the interesting parts of that is just how different, I mean, when we say pediatrics, we say typically age 18 and under, mm-hmm. and difference within that time frame is absolutely enormous. Right. Um, and right. so, and that's reflected in the types of patients that we see. Uh, so when we see an adolescent, uh, you know, the, the most common scenarios are either suicide attempt or, or self-harm intent, which is obviously sad on a whole number of levels and can involve any number of medications, prescription mm-hmm. over-the-counter, et cetera, or uh, recreational use, whether um, you know, trying to get high, regular use, mm-hmm. or uh, just experimentation, which is a huge part of growing up in general. Uh, and, and that can range anywhere from um, taking a couple of over-the-counter medications, plants, seeds, or hard illicit drugs like heroin uh, and cocaine and amphetamines. With our younger children, uh, that's almost always going to be sort of uh, an exploratory ingestion is what we'll call it, especially when we're looking at age five and under. Right. 
these are kids who are you know learning about their environment mm-hmm. and one of the ways that they do that is by discovering things and seeing what they do and that includes medications other chemicals things that they find in the house in their near environment whether we think that they're adequately stored away or not right. kids especially as they get to be a few years old are really uh intuitive mm-hmm. and uh able to access areas we wouldn't have thought so uh and so they get into all sorts of things which includes uh prescription uh, illicit drugs Mm-hmm. Uh, over-the-counter medications, and again, cleaning supplies and cosmetics right. and all those right. kinds of things. So uh, for the younger ones, that's the usual scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, the adolescence is usually intentional mm-hmm. um, for self-harm or recreation, and then in between can kind of fall in either either category. As you mentioned, um, under five, it's completely natural to want to explore, and they're much more innovative than I think we often give them credit for. We don't realize how adept they are at finding and opening things. I remember my son was, I think he was not even quite two, he opened an ibuprofen bottle that you're supposed to push down and turn one way. Right. Yeah, child <laughs> child proof is definitely not a hundred uh, percent. Yeah, uh, term. child proof is not a hundred percent. In fact, proof. It's, it's often adult proof. <laughs> right. um, but because it's hard for us to open, but kids kids almost always find a way. The other thing right. they do is they imitate behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. if they see you doing something, uh, they may be more likely to try. And another thing that we'll see, especially with the younger ones, when we want them to take medication, sometimes they'll um, we'll use a candy metaphor. Uh, they say, "Hey, look at this." It's just another treat or candy, uh, which, while, you know, maybe serve the immediate purpose, can have long-term negative effects. So we definitely recommend against that. Yeah, that's a great point, being kind of mindful of how you talk about medication, that it's not a food, it's not a treat, it's not a candy. So how has the rate of toxicology consults that changed over the years for you at Children's Hospital? Or has it? Um... No, I don't, I don't think it necessarily has changed uh, over time. Um, maybe the nature, we have definitely seen um, more uh, consults for harder drug use mm. in, in adolescence. Adolescents have always sort of used drugs, mm-hmm. you know, sure. uh, going back decades and decades right. and probably longer. Right. Um, but the, the types of drugs uh, that are used... Um, you know, not not a lot still, but we've seen 11-year-olds intentionally using heroin, uh, which 10 years ago I never saw. Right. Not to say that that's common, that's an outlier, right. but we've seen it. Right. Um, really potent synthetic cannabinoids or, you know, mm-hmm. synth- quote-unquote synthetic marijuana, uh, which has much more effect than, you know, what we consider as typical for marijuana, mm-hmm. which, again, is that's been done by teenagers for uh, right. forever. Right. Uh, so things like that. And then in the younger kids, um, we, we've seen, you know, basically what people have prescribed to them, we see that reflected in uh, what little kids get exposed to. Uh, so what becomes more available and more common, we see exposures to those things rise. Mm-hmm. And that's been reported uh, throughout published literature as well as my own experience. And specifically as we think about opioids in the last you know, two decades or so, uh, we've definitely seen a rise in opioid exposures mm-hmm. in kids. Uh, and more recently, interestingly, uh, a rise in buprenorphine exposures in young kids. Mm-hmm. In fact, about half of our little kids uh, who get exposed to opioids, uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, uh, are to buprenorphine. 
And I think that reflects both an increased availability, which Mm -hmm. in general from a population standpoint is a good thing, um, but also reflects its relative ease because it dissolves. You don't have to swallow a pill. Um, And probably uh, an opportunity for improvement in our discussion with patients about safe storage. Yeah, yeah. So... So you're seeing kind of two separate patterns for the older children that you're seeing at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, adolescent age, you've seen not a change in the number that you're consulted to see, but the change in what they're being exposed to, Uh, kind of harder drugs, for lack of a better term. And then in younger children, it reflects a change and what people in their home are being prescribed. And you mentioned modeling and all this type. Um, Can you remind or kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about what buprenorphine is? Sure. I think sometimes it's challenging for people to know the difference between opioids that are typically used for recreation versus medical assisted treatment. Sure, absolutely. So buprenorphine is the opioid component, and and most people are aware of the brand name of one Mm -hmm. of the drugs, which is Suboxone um, or Subutex, Uh, the difference being one has naloxone in it. Uh, So Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, um, which it can get very complicated very quickly, but the idea of that is to make sure that people don't uh, try to inject it or use it in a way that it isn't meant to. Uh, But that has been an incredibly useful medication in treating patients with opioid use Mm -hmm. disorder. So people who are uh, addicted to prescription or illicit opioids, so whether it be oxycodone or heroin, fentanyl, Mm -hmm. et cetera, um, that medication uh, is very, uh, has great evidence to show that people who are prescribed it uh, do much, much better as far as survival and essentially function in life and satisfaction mm-hmm. uh, compared to people who aren't on medications. Uh, and just as a, a slight aside, uh, it's not a replacement of an addiction. It's really just a medication for treating an underlying disease like we do for any number of other things. And there's more to it uh, because it doesn't fully replace Uh, or provide the same kind of feeling as other opioids, Mm -hmm. Um, but it does treat the changes in our brain uh, that have come about from recurrent use of those other types of opioids um, like oxycodone or heroin Mm -hmm. or or many others. So so it's a really important medication uh, for the treatment of the long-term disease of opioid use disorder. Um, But as far as you know, availability and things like that. Um, it is uh, prescribed and people store it in their homes, mm-hmm. uh, which is different than methadone, which people will typically get uh, every day at a clinic. Um, and it, it comes as a strip um, that we, almost like a Listerine strip, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, that you can put in your cheek or under your tongue and it dissolves in your mouth. Uh, so from a kid's perspective, it becomes very easy. Once it's in your mouth, it's essentially in your system. Unlike with a lot of pills and tablets that kids might get into they get it in their mouth it's kind of gross and chalky and they might spit it out so i'm so glad you clarified that and so thank you and also you know the individuals who are taking um this are taking it because it's prescribed by a medical provider and they're working towards a better life right they're doing a good thing um so 
I'm so glad that you mentioned that. This isn't a drug that, because I think sometimes, especially in the media and, you know, social media, um, it gets blown out of proportion and taken out of context, and people think that this is a recreational drug. And I will say, and you will hear from politicians and law enforcement, mm-hmm, right. et cetera, um, about the quote-unquote diversion of, mm-hmm. of buprenorphine. Um, and it's it's not actually, that that's actually true. It is, there is a market for buying buprenorphine outside of the medical community. But when you look at the reasons why people do it, uh, essentially 80% of people are doing it because they don't want to use drugs. They're essentially trying to treat themselves. Right. But because there's such limited access to good medicine and medication treatment from licensed providers, they have little alternative. And you see that uh, where there's been published studies um, that by far a majority of people who are taking buprenorphine or suboxone outside of the medical system would actually prefer to get it within the medical system. So it's really a failure of access as opposed to a question of uh, recreational use or you know trying to get high uh, from this medication for, for for almost for most people yeah thank you so you see adults and children in kind of a short-term acute setting when they're presenting to the hospital because of poisoning basically is that the right term Sure, poisoning, toxicity. Sure, sure. Um, And then you also see patients and individuals who are in longer-term care, substance use disorder treatment. So how do you see a link? You already mentioned earlier that the emergency room for adults is a kind of place where you can start to connect them to services. Um, But can you expand on what you see as the link between toxicology consults and longer-term substance use treatment? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there are several layers to that question. Um, I'll, I'll start in the emergency department and then kind of work okay. our way longer term, if that's okay. Sure. That's um, so in the emergency department, one of the practices that has become more and more um, popular and I think uh, evidence-supported uh, is initiation of treatment with a medication like buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as toxicologists, we have special expertise like addiction providers and how to do that. And so we've been able to implement that process at all of our systems hospitals. Um, and then thinking about on the inpatient side, the other thing that we've been able to do um, is patients who are admitted to a hospital for medical or surgical reasons. So basically, they have an opioid use disorder or substance use disorder, and they're admitted because of a heart problem, an infection, or something else. Mm -hmm. Um, We are able to provide addiction care to those patients while they're in the hospital. Uh, So we're not a detoxification or rehabilitation facility, uh, and that can't be the only reason that they're admitted. It's it's sort of a a licensing issue. Uh, But while they're in the hospital, federal law uh, sort of allows you to care for them, which includes medications when appropriate, uh, and we work closely with social work, uh, specialized nurses, peer recovery specialists uh, who are absolutely critical uh, in helping patients along uh, at the road to recovery and others to not only care for them while they're in the hospital, help the other medical providers to care for them and understand uh, what they're going through uh, 
alleviate a lot of the withdrawal and other uh, types of stresses that, that are unique to that patient population, and also start them on a treatment that um, ideally we can connect them with as they leave the hospital to continue therapy, whether that be with medications, uh, which in the case of opioids is almost always the case, uh, or, or um, for alcohol, benzodiazepines, or other mm-hmm. substance use uh, disorders with the best type of treatment once they leave uh, closer to home. So for individuals with a substance use disorder, particularly with opioid use disorder, you seem to be a big advocate of medication-assisted treatment. That gives them the best chance of successful recovery. And how do, you know, we mentioned earlier, especially children under five, um, how do we safeguard children from accessing those medications? Because they are important. We don't want to stop prescribing them. Mm Absolutely. I am absolutely in favor of that. Um, and, and as a physician uh, scientist, you know, I'm in favor of things that are supported by objective evidence, which mm-hmm. is why I'm so in favor. Uh, and, and as a sort of slight clarification, I don't technically use the term medication-assisted treatment. Oh, okay. Um, for the treatment of opioid use disorder, medications are first-line evidence-based treatment, um, and the best single treatment. So, so I just call it medication treatment for opioid use disorder or medication treatment. Um, And we also understand that behavioral health interventions and treatment are critical to almost all patients as well um, and in conjunction. As with many other diseases, we have behavioral interventions, diet, exercise, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and medication interventions, but we don't consider them assisting uh, the behavioral interventions. Um, And as for how to safeguard, and this is should be true of all medications, whether uh, for opioid use disorder, opioids for pain, which many patients still need, blood pressure medicines, uh, things for gout that are some of the most mm-hmm. dangerous medications we have. Uh, the key is with any medication, prescription over-the-counter, which can also be dangerous, which we sometimes don't think of, um, when you have children in the house is several things. One, uh, you want to keep them in their original packaging, because while child-proof doesn't mean child-proof, Proof, it can slow a kid down, <laughs> at least mm-hmm. make it more likely that you mm-hmm. catch them or right. it stops them or they lose interest and move on to something else. Right. Uh, two, it lets it make sure you know what it is that the child has access. We see sometimes people will combine multiple pills into a single container, uh, which is fine when you know what they are, but when a child has access to that container, then you don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> as the physician, right. and you don't know what that child might have gotten into. And the, the you know, uh, impact on treatment can be huge uh, if it's one thing versus another. Um, those, those things should be stored in one place, should be stored high, meaning not, not that a child can't access something high, but it's, again, much more difficult. Uh, closed uh, container and ideally locked, and that's hard. I mean, I, you know, I have kids, and life is hard, and there's things moving a 1,000 miles an hour, uh, and it can be hard to have a locked container, but that would be ideal because, again, it's another barrier, particularly with, you know, opioids uh, and other dangerous medications. Um, but at least if it's high and out of reach, uh, that, uh, that will be a significant barrier. And then the other part is education, talking to your kids. You know, certainly a very small child uh, may not be able to fully grasp all the nuance of what's good medicine and bad medicine and things like that. Um, but at least to start that discussion, um, at the Pittsburgh Poison Center, you know, for more than 40 years, we've had Mr. Yuck, um, the stickers and magnets and things like that. 
that. So a child may not be able to understand nuance, but they might be able to understand, okay, that equals bad, and if you put it on something, don't touch. Right. Um, and those kinds of simple messaging, uh, whether it's Mr. Yuck or otherwise, um, something like that can be helpful. Uh, and then having a plan in place. So knowing, okay, it's pretty unlikely that this is going to happen. Having said that, we get tens of thousands of calls per year just to our poison center uh, about children five and under who get into something. Um, so while it's maybe low likelihood it'll happen to you, uh, there's, there's a real chance. Uh, and the more things you have in your home, pills, chemicals otherwise, the more likely it is. Uh, know what you're going to do. How are you going to respond? Am I going to call 911? Uh, certainly if there's an emergency or the child is clearly sick, just call 911 and that, that's the priority. Um, if there's a question about an exposure or maybe they got into something and they seem okay and you're not sure, mm -hmm. that's a perfect time to call the poison center. We can keep a lot of people at home and from having to go to a hospital incur all those costs and time and fear and anxiety, um, a lot of what we do is reassure people. Right. Um, and specifically in the cases of opioids, um, you know, we know that they can act very rapidly, especially for young children uh, who presumably are naive to the medicines, never been exposed to them. You know, that can happen really fast. So even if you call 911 right away and the time it takes uh, for the typical 15-minute response, um, your child may slow down or stop breathing. My recommendation is if you have children in the home and an opioid in the home is to have naloxone in the home and know how to use it. Um, you know, naloxone may not be necessary for every, you know, to be prescribed with every single uh, opioid prescription, uh, but if there is a high risk or, again, if there is a small child, uh, there's really no downside to having it. Uh, in Pennsylvania, anyway, we can get it at a pharmacy uh, through a standing order, so you don't even need to ask your physician. It can be, it's covered by nearly all insurances, including Medicaid, um, with relatively low co pays generally. You can buy it cash, but it gets a bit expensive. Uh, but it's really easy to use. It's a nasal spray, so there's no needles involved. Um, so I recommend that, again, for, for any house with children and opioids. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure you conveyed to listeners? Well, I think um, specifically related to um, children or adolescents in the mm -hmm. home and not just opioids but just met you know mm -hmm. substances opioids benzodiazepines psychoactive medications right. uh, we know there's a strong link between what's prescribed in the home mm -hmm. and what younger children are exposed to and what adolescents can become exposed to and then start to use uh, in a problematic way uh, and so again knowing that and safeguarding your medications those medications may be necessary for mm -hmm. some people and they're going to be in your home and that's okay if it's under the a physician's care um, but you also need to be careful and understand that there are risks just like they are with lots of other things that we do uh, and I think open and honest discussion with children about risks uh, and dangers as well as safeguards storage and keeping an accurate count and uh, you know of knowing what it is that you have and if some are missing point, uh, right? those are those are just easy things that you can do to mm -hmm. help hopefully prevent a tragedy for me the take home from our discussion today is if you have a loved one with a substance use disorder and they are taking a drug for that condition like um, buprenorphine right um, that is medical treatment 
and it, it has the most evidence behind it. This is, they're doing the right thing, right? And just like if you have a medication in your home that could be toxic, could be poisonous, like medication prescribed for a condition like gout, you need to follow these safeguards. Um, And just like with gout, you have to follow those. It's nothing to, you know, blame the person taking the medication. They're doing the right thing. That's right. Um, And you brought up great points, keeping it up high, keeping it in the original packaging, having an idea of how many pills that you have or how much of that medication that you have. You know, talking to kids about certain drugs being potentially poisonous or toxic, not referring to drugs, medication is candy. Having a Mr. Yuck sticker. If you're really concerned, don't wait. Call 911 right away, especially for fast-acting drugs like opioids. And if you have a question, call the poison control. And can you remind us of that number again? Sure. It's 1-800-222-1222. And that works anywhere in the United States. It will route you to your local poison center. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to offer diagnosis or treatment of any medical or psychological condition. All treatment decisions should be made in partnership with your healthcare professional.